Hello and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and this is our pandemic season, episode 9. It is Saturday, April 18th and here in Massachusetts where I live, it snowed today. I got about 2 to 3 inches of snow out on my deck. What is going on? It is April. It is April 18th. And in the middle of a global pandemic, we get snow in the middle of April. Truly, we are living in a disaster movie. So, especially with snow out there, it seems like a good time as any to get away from this place, get away from it all, and go to the Caribbean with David Foster Wallace on a cruise. Yep, so we're continuing our journey through the essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, by David Foster Wallace, written in 1996, in which he takes us on a cruise. And so, when we last left him yesterday in section 8 of the essay, he had just um, gone through this uh, this rumination. It was his third day on the cruise. It was finally the first sunny day on the cruise. And he was... Uh, uh, he, he chose that day to read this essay that's in the brochure of uh, advertising this cruise. And he goes into this, this philosophical rumination on essays, which is very meta because here we are uh, reading an essay about David Foster Wallace reading an essay on a cruise ship. Now, though, in this section, let's continue and see what is it like to be on a cruise ship in the Caribbean on a warm, warm, sunny day, away from all of this news about the pandemic. Let us join David Foster Wallace in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, section nine. Celebrity's fiendish brochure does not lie or exaggerate, however, in the luxury department. I now confront the journalistic problem of not being sure how many examples I need to list in order to communicate the atmosphere of sybaritic and nearly insanity-producing pampering on board the MV Nader. How about, for just one example, Saturday, 11 March, right after sailing, but before the North Sea weather hits, when I want to go out to Deck 10's port rail for some introductory vista-gazing and thus decide I need some zinc oxide for my peel-prone nose. My zinc oxide is still in my big duffel bag, which at that point is piled with all Deck 10's other luggage in the little area between the 10-4 elevator and the 10-4 staircase, while little men in cadet blue celebrity jumpsuits, porters, entirely Lebanese, the squad seemed to be, porters are cross-checking the luggage tags with the Nader's passenger list lot numbers and organizing the luggage and taking it all up the port and starboard halls to people's cabins. And But so I come out and spot my duffel among the luggage, and I start to grab and haul it out of the towering pile of leather and nylon, with the idea that I can just whisk the bag back to 1009 myself and root through it and find my good old ZNO. Footnote 41, which, by the way, trust me, I used to lifeguard part-time 
and fuck this SPF hoo-ha, good old ZNO will keep your nose looking like a newborn's. End footnote. And one of the porters sees me starting to grab the bag, and he dumps all four of the massive pieces of luggage he's staggering with and leaps to intercept me. At first, I'm afraid he thinks I'm some kind of baggage thief and wants to see my claim check or something. But it it turns out that what he wants is my duffel. He wants to carry it to 1009 for me. And I, who am about half again this poor herniated little guy's size, uh, as is the duffel bag itself, I, I protest politely, trying to be considerate, saying, Oh, don't fret, not a big deal, just need my good old Zeno. I, I indicate to the porter that I can see they have some sort of incredibly organized ordinal luggage dispersal system underway here, and that I don't mean to disrupt it or make him carry a lot number seven bag before a lot number two bag or anything, and no, I'll just get the big old heavy weather-stained sucker out of here myself and, and give the little guy that much less work to do. And then now a very strange argument indeed ensues, me versus the Lebanese porter, because it turns out I am putting this guy, who barely speaks English, in a terrible kind of sedulous service double bind, a paradox of pampering, viz. the passenger's always right versus never let a passenger carry his own bag paradox. Clueless at the time about what this poor little Lebanese man is going through, I wave off both his high-pitched protests and his agonized expression as mere servile courtesy, and I extract the duffel and lug it up the hall to 1009 and slather the old beak with ZNO and go outside to watch the coast of Florida recede cinematically a la F. Conroy. Only later did I understand what I had done. Only later did I learn that that little Lebanese Deck 10 porter had his head just about chewed off by the also Lebanese Deck 10 head porter who'd had his own head chewed off by the Austrian chief steward who had received confirmed reports that a Deck 10 passenger had been seen carrying his own luggage up the port hallway of Deck 10 and now demanded rolling Lebanese heads for this clear indication of porterly dereliction. And had reported, the Austrian chief steward did, the incident, as is apparently standard operating procedure, to an officer in the guest relations department, a Greek officer with Revo shades and a walkie-talkie and officerial epaulets so complex I never did figure out what his rank was. And this high-ranking Greek guy actually came around to 1009 after Saturday's supper to apologize on behalf of practically the entire Chandra's shipping line and to assure me that ragged-neck Lebanese heads were even at that moment rolling down various corridors in piacular recompense for my having had to carry my own bag. 
And even though this Greek officer's English was in lots of ways better than mine, it took me no less than 10 minutes to express my own horror and to claim responsibility and to detail the double bind I'd put the porter in, brandishing at relevant moments the actual tube of ZNO that had caused the whole snafu. Ten or more minutes before I could get enough of a promise from the Greek officer that various chewed-off heads would be reattached and employee records unbesmirched to feel comfortable enough to allow the officer to leave. And, and the whole incident was incredibly frazzling and angst-fraught and filled almost a whole Mead notebook and his here recounted in only its barest psychoskeletal outline. Footnote 42. I, you know, in further retrospect, I think the only thing I really persuaded the Greek officer of was that I was very weird and possibly unstable, which impression I'm sure was shared with Mr. Dermatitis and combined with that same first night's Aujus shark bait request, it combined to destroy my credibility with dermatitis before I even got in to see him. End footnote. This is everywhere on the nadir you look. Evidence of a steely determination to indulge the passenger in ways that go far beyond any halfway sane passenger's own expectations. Footnote 43. One of Celebrity Cruise's slogans asserts that they look forward to exceeding your expectations. They say it a lot, and they're sincere, though they're either disingenuous about or innocent of this excess's psychic consequences. Back to the essay. Some, some wholly random examples of this. My cabin bathroom has plenty of thick, fluffy towels, but when I go up to lie in the sun, to either Deck 11's pools or Deck 12's Temple of Raw, I don't have to take any of my cabin's towels because the two upper deck's sun areas have big carts loaded with even thicker and fluffier towels. These carts are stationed at convenient intervals along endless rows of gymnastically adjustable deck chairs that are themselves phenomenally fine deck chairs, sturdy enough for even the portliest sunbather, but also ah, narcoleptically comfortable with heavy alloy skeletons over which is stretched some exotic material that combines canvas's quick-drying durability with cotton's absorbency and comfort. The material's precise composition is mysterious, but it's a welcome step up from the public pool's deck chair surface of Kmart-ish plastic that sticks and produces farty suction noises whenever you shift your sweaty weight on it. And the nader's chair's material is not striated or cross-hatched in some web, but it's a solid expanse stretched drum-tight over the frame so that you don't get those weird pink chair stripes on the side you're lying on. 
Oh, uh, and each Upper Deck's carts are manned by a special squad of full-time towel guys so that when you're well done on both sides and ready to quit and spring easily out of the deck chair, you don't have to pick up your towel and take it with you or even bus it into the cart's used towel slot because a towel guy materializes the minute your fanny leaves the chair and removes your towel for you and deposits it in the slot. Actually, the towel guys are such overachievers about removing used towels that even if you just get up for a second to reapply ZNO or gaze contemplatively out over the railing, often when you turn back around, your towel's gone and your deck chair is refolded to the uniform 45 degrees at rest angle and you have to readjust your chair all over again and go to the cart to get a fresh fluffy towel of which there's admittedly not a short supply. Down in the five-star Caravelle restaurant, the waiter, footnote 45, table 64's waiter, by the way, is Tibor, a Hungarian and a truly exceptional person about whom, if there's any editorial justice, you will learn a lot more someplace below. Back to the essay. Down in the five-star Caravelle restaurant, the waiter will not only bring you, e.g., lobster, as well as seconds and even thirds uh, on lobster, with methamphetaminic speed, but he'll also incline over you, uh, not invasively or obtrusively or condescendingly, incline over you with gleaming claw cracker and surgical fork, and dismantle the lobster for you, saving you the green, goopy work. That's the only remotely rigorous thing about lobster. Footnote 46 on this. Not until Tuesday's lobster night at the five-star CR did I really emphatically understand the Roman phenomenon of the vomitorium. At the Windsurf Café, up on deck 11 by the pools, where there's always an informal buffet lunch, there's never that bovine line that makes most cafeterias such a downer. And there are about 73 varieties of entree alone and incredibly good coffee. And if you're carrying a bunch of notebooks or even just have too many things on your tray, a waiter will materialize as you peel away from the buffet and will carry your tray. I.e., even though it's a cafeteria, there are all these waiters standing around, all with Nehru-esque jackets and white towels draped over left arms that are always held in the position of broken or withered arms, watching you, the waiters, not quite making eye contact, but scanning for any little way to be of service. Plus, plum-jacketed sommeliers, walking around to see if you need a non-buffet libation. Plus, a whole other crew of maitre d's and supervisors watching the waiters and sommeliers and tall-hatted buffet servers to make sure they're not even thinking of letting you do something for yourself that they could be doing for you. 
Footnote 48. Again, you never have to bust your tray after eating at the windsurf because the waiters leap to take them. And again, the zeal can be a hassle because if you get up just to go get another peach or something and still have a cup of coffee and some yummy sandwich crusts you've been saving for last, a lot of times you come back and the tray and the crusts are gone. And I personally start to attribute this over-sedulous bussing to the reign of Hellenic terror the waiters labor under. End of footnote. Every public surface on the MV Nader that isn't stainless steel or glass or varnished parquet or dense and good-smelling sauna-type wood is plush blue carpet that never naps and never has a chance to accumulate even one flecklet of lint because jumpsuited third-wall guys are always at it with Siemens AG high-suction vacuums. The elevators are Euroglass and yellow steel and stainless steel and a kind of wood grain material that looks too shiny to be real wood, but makes a sound when you thump it that's an awful lot like real wood. Footnote 49. The many things on the nadir that were wood grain but not real wood were such marvelous and painstaking imitations of wood that a, a lot of times it seemed like it would have been just simpler and less expensive simply to have used real wood. End of footnote. The elevators and stairways between decks seem to be the particular objects of the anal retention of a whole special elevator and staircase custodial crew. Footnotes 50, 51, and 52, and, and I'm going to come back to those at the end of the section. And let's don't forget room service, which on a 7NC luxury cruise is called cabin service. Cabin service is in addition to the 11 scheduled daily opportunities for public eating, and it's available 24-7, and it's free. All you have to do is hit X72 on the bedside phone, and 10 or 15 minutes later, a guy who wouldn't even dream of hitting you up for a gratuity appears with this, this tray, quote, thinly sliced ham and Swiss cheese on white bread with Dijon mustard, unquote. Quote, the combo Cajun chicken with pasta salad and spicy salsa, unquote. On and on, a whole page of sandwiches and platters in the services directory. And the stuff deserves to be capitalized, believe me. As a kind of semi-agoraphobe who spends massive amounts of time in my cabin, I come to have a really complex dependency-slash-shame relationship with cabin service. Since finally getting around to reading the services directory and finding out about it Monday night, I've ended up availing myself of cabin service every night, more like twice a night, to be honest, even though I find it extremely embarrassing to be calling up extension 72, asking to have even more rich food brought up to me when there have already been 11 gourmet eating ops that day. Footnote 53. This is, by the way, counting the midnight buffet, which tends to be a kind of lamely 
lavish theme slash costume party-ish thing with theme-related foods, Oriental, Caribbean, Tex-Mex, and which I plan in this essay to mostly skip, except to say that Tex-Mex Night Out by the Pools featured what must have been a seven-foot-high ice sculpture of Pancho Villa that spent the whole party dripping steadily onto the mammoth sombrero of Tibor, Table 64's beloved and extremely cool Hungarian waiter, whose contract forces him on Tex-Mex night to wear a serape and a straw sombrero with a 17-inch radius, footnote 53a. He let me measure it when the reptilian mitre day wasn't looking. With a 17-inch radius and to dispense four-alarm chili from a steam table placed right underneath an ice sculpture in whose pink and bird-like face on occasions like this expressed a combination of mortification and dignity that seemed somehow to sum up the whole plight of post-war Eastern Europe. Back to the essay. Asking to have even more rich foods brought to me when there have already been 11 gourmet eating ops that day. Usually what I do is spread out my notebooks and Fielding's Guide to Worldwide Cruising 1995 and pens and various materials all over the bed. So when the cabin service guy appears at the door, he'll see all this balletristic material and figure I'm working really hard on something balletristic right here in the cabin and have doubtless been too busy to have hit all the public meals and I'm thus legitimately entitled to the indulgence of cabin service. Footnote 54. Yeah, I know, like I'm sure this guy even cares. But it's my experience with the cabin cleaning that's maybe the ultimate example of stress from a pampering so extravagant that it messes with your head. Ah, searing crush or no, the fact of the matter is I rarely even see 1009's cabin steward, the diaphanous and epicanthically doe-eyed Petra. But I have good reason to believe she sees me. Because every time I leave 1009 for more than like half an hour, when I get back, it's totally cleaned and dusted down again, and the towels are replaced, and the bathroom agleam. Don't get me wrong. In a way, it's great. I am kind of a slob, and I'm in cabin 1009 a lot, and I also come and go a lot. Footnote 55. This is primarily because of the semi-agoraphobia. I'd have to sort of psych myself up to leave the cabin and go accumulate experiences. And then pretty quickly out there in the general population, my will would break. And I'd find some sort of excuse to scuttle back to 1009. This happened quite a few times a day. I'm in cabin 1009 a lot, and I also come and go a lot. And when I'm in here in 1009, I sit in bed and write in bed while eating fruit and generally mess up the bed. But then, whenever I dart out and then come back, the bed is freshly made up and hospital cornered. And there's another 
mint-centered chocolate on the pillow. Footnote 56. Uh, this footnote right here is being written almost a week after the cruise ended, and I'm still living mainly on these hoarded mint-centered chocolates. I fully grant that mysterious, invisible room cleaning is in a way great. Every truce loves fantasy. Somebody materializing and deslobbing your room and then dematerializing, like having a mom without the guilt. But there is also, I think, a creeping guilt here, a deep, accretive uneasiness, a discomfort that presents, at least in my own case, as a weird kind of pampering paranoia. Because after a couple of days of this fabulous invisible room cleaning, I start to wonder how exactly Petra knows when I'm in 1009 and when I'm not. It's now that it occurs to me how rarely I ever see her. For a while, I try experiments, like all of a sudden darting out into the ten-port hallway to see if I can see Petra hunched somewhere keeping track of who is decabining. And I scour the whole hallway and ceiling area for evidence of some kind of camera or monitor tracking movements outside the cabin doors. Zilch on both fronts. But then I realize that the mystery is even more complex and unsettling than I'd first thought. Because my cabin gets cleaned always and only during intervals where I'm gone more than half an hour. When I go out, how can Petra or her supervisors possibly know how long I'm going to be gone? I try leaving 1009 a couple times and then dashing back after 10 or 15 minutes to see whether I can catch Petra in delicto. But she's never there. I try making a truly unholy mess in 1009 and then leaving and hiding somewhere on a lower deck and then dashing back after exactly 29 minutes. And again, when I come bursting through the door, there's no Petra and no cleaning. Then I leave the cabin with exactly the same expression and appurtenances as before, and this time stay hidden for 31 minutes, and then haul ass back, and this time again, no sighting of Petra. But now, 1009 is sterilized and gleaming, and there's a mint on the pillow's fresh new case. Know that I carefully scrutinize every inch of every surface I pass, as I circle the deck during these little experiments. No cameras or motion sensors or anything in evidence anywhere that would explain how they know. Footnote 57. Uh, the answer to why I don't just ask Petra how she does it is that Petra's English is extremely limited and primitive. And in sad fact, I'm afraid my whole deep feeling of attraction and connection to Petra, the Slovenian steward, has been erected on the flimsy foundation of the only two English clauses she seems to know, one or the other of which clauses she uses in response to every statement, question, joke, 
or protestation of undying devotion. They are, quote, It's no problem. And, quote, You are a funny thing. End of footnote. Nothing in evidence anywhere that would explain how they know. So now for a while I theorize that somehow a special crewman is assigned to each passenger and follows that passenger at all times using extremely sophisticated techniques of personal surveillance and reporting the passenger's movements and activities and projected time of cabin return back to steward HQ or something. And so for about a day, I tried taking extreme evasive actions, whirling suddenly to check behind me, popping around corners, darting in and out of gift shops via different doors, etc. Never one sign of anybody engaged in surveillance. I never develop even a plausible theory about how they do it. By the time I quit trying, I'm feeling half-crazed. And my counter-surveillance measures are drawing frightened looks and even some temple tapping from Ten Port's other guests. I submit that there's something deeply mind-fucking about the Taipei personality service and pampering on the nadir, and that the manic, invisible cabin cleaning provides the clearest example of what's creepy about it. Because deep down, it's not really like having a mom. Say the guilt and nagging, etc. A mom cleans up after you largely because she loves you. You're the point, the object of the cleaning somehow. On the nadir, though, once the novelty and convenience have worn off, I begin to see that the phenomenal cleaning really has nothing to do with me. Parenthesis It's been particularly traumatic for me to realize that. Petra is cleaning cabin 1009 so phenomenally well simply because she's under orders to do so, and thus, obviously, that she's not doing it for me or because she likes me or thinks I'm no problem or a funny thing. In fact, she'd clean my cabin just as phenomenally well even if I were a dork. And maybe conceivably behind a smile does consider me a dork. In which case, what if, in fact, I really am a dork? I mean, if pampering and radical kindness don't seem motivated by strong affection and thus don't seem somehow affirm one or help assure one that one is not finally a dork, of what final and significant value is all this indulgence and cleaning? End parenthesis. The feeling is not all that dissimilar to the experience of being a guest in the home of somebody who does things like sneak in in the a.m. and make your guest bed up for you while you're in the shower and fold your dirty clothes or even launder them without being asked to or who empties your ashtray after each cigarette you smoke, etc. For a while with a host like this, it seems great and you feel cared about and prized and affirmed and worthwhile, etc. But then after a while, you begin to intuit that the host isn't acting out of regard or affection for you so much as simply going around obeying the imperatives of some personal neurosis 
having to do with domestic cleanliness and order. Which means that since the ultimate point and object of the cleaning isn't you, but rather cleanliness and order, it's going to be a relief for her when you leave. Meaning, her hygienic pampering of you is actually evidence that she doesn't want you around. The nader doesn't have the scotch-guarded carpet or plastic-wrapped furniture of a true anal-type host like this, but the psychic aura is the same, and so is the projected relief of getting out. Get out. Whew, that was a that was a nice long section there. Hmm. So, some Hari notes. Um, yeah, it it does seem like such a different world in two different ways, two different levels. One is that you know, like, even if I were to have read this in February this year. February 2020 seems like such a different world to read a section like this compared to 1996. You know, I must admit, reading this aloud um, and about the whole descriptions of the the various different types of service workers who are there on this cruise ship and what we now know of cruise ships is just how vastly underpaid service workers are on cruise ships. And in fact, one reason why so many cruise ships are actually registered uh, all cruise ships actually registered to places like Monrovia or Liberia um, are, are places that that don't have laws against uh, you know underpaying or abusing workers. Uh, even before knowing all of that, there's this way of of just reading this description and in in, in 2020 and feeling like such a disconnect to the world of 1996. And then there's the disconnect between even the world of February 2020. To the world of April 2020, there's a way in which reading these these descriptions of just the extravagant luxuries on board such cruise ships, uh, it, they just feel like uh, so so alien right now in this in this world of a global pandemic where where there's so much suffering and even basic uh, necessities are in 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 shortage, let alone life saving necessities. Um, this is also a, a world in which service workers are are even more um, important. We, we we see just how essential they are. They've been labeled as essential in many places, so they they cannot stay home, and they're being forced. These are grocery clerks. These are you know restaurant workers. These are people in in the so-called gig gig economy. Uber drivers, Grubhub shoppers, and deliverers. Um, you know, folks that even in the gig economy were being exploited anyway, and now they're they're doubly, triply exploited. These are folks that are all the more likely to be minorities and to be poor, people who can't afford to get sick uh, of all ages. Uh, many gig workers tend to be also millennials, um, trying to find a job, trying to find a way to make ends meet. But they also tend to be retired people doing the same thing for the same reasons, retired people who don't have savings and are trying to pick up an extra job to make ends meet. And these are also the same people who are just so much more likely to get seriously, seriously sick with coronavirus. 
um, because they often also tend to have underlying health conditions and here in the US also tend to be people that don't have health insurance, can't do basic healthcare, um, preventive health uh, checkups. So often have hidden underlying conditions that they were not able to afford to even go get checked by a doctor before all of this hit. So all of this just, you know, makes me think about all of those, those the, the folks that are on those other front lines and, and, uh, and my own assumptions about who I think is listening to this, to this podcast. I'm a comfortable upper middle class, uh, gainfully employed person right now. And that puts me in, in, in quite the minority. And it is, it is quite the luxury right now to be even podcasting this on a Saturday night and to complain about the snow on my deck <laughs> when there's so many people in much, much worse situations right now. So thank someone when you're out and you're buying groceries um, or you're picking up takeout food or somebody's delivering groceries to you. Apart from that, a couple of other Hari notes. Um, there's a section here where he talks about the lobster. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, this, this, this also reminds me that this is actually before David Foster Wallace writes, I think, the essay that most people know him for, which is called Consider the Lobster. And that may be an essay I might read a different day. That's the first essay that I read that introduced me to this idea of David Foster Wallace. Um, and um, this thing that he says at the very end about uh, this this being a guest in the home of somebody who who's so anal about this. I actually have a story to share about that. This, you know, I, I live here in Massachusetts, and you know, many many years ago. Uh, this would have been before my daughter was born, so this would have been about at least 11, 12 years ago. Uh, we had just moved to a small small college town in Massachusetts, and we were going to a church that was predominantly much older people. And uh, an elderly couple uh, invited us as, as sort of the, the new young couple in the church to their house as, as, as a way to kind of uh, make us feel welcome to the church. And so my ex and I went to this, this, this couple's house. And what I remember is just how incredibly uncomfortable we were. This house was meticulously kept by the couple. And especially as we came to learn later on by the woman in this couple uh, who uh, we we were introduced in and taken to the living room, and this was their formal living room. They had a parlor, they had a sitting room, and they had a dining room and a kitchen, uh, and a lounge and a den. Uh, but the living room, the formal living room, is where they would have guests come, and so we were taken to their formal living room, which was extremely formal. The furniture was clean and dusted and I got the impression that just before we had come in, dust covers had been taken off all the furniture. The clocks were, were wiped clean, the table was gleaming and polished. Um, the lady of the house brought us uh, tea in little tea saucers and little teacups. And as soon as I would put my tea down, she would bring out a coaster or a dolly to put my tea on it. Uh, and 
as soon as we would get up to maybe just, you know, go look at something, she'd be wiping down the table. Uh, and, and then we would sit down again. And, and there was this, this sense that as soon as we left, she was going to dust the the, the chairs and, and restore the, the room back to its pristine glory. And I did get the feeling that even though they had invited us to, to make us feel welcome, I got the feeling exactly like what David Foster Wallace is describing here, this feeling that actually we weren't welcome. The ultimate point of her, all of her cleaning and maintenance of the house wasn't to honor the guests who came. It was for her own neurosis to keep this house looking exactly like it was back in 1930 when, when she and her husband bought the house. So that was that, that, that feeling of wanting to just get out. And this is, that's also a feeling that's explored in the movie Get Out, which is about the experiences of, of being a person of color in a, in a white uh, uh, family, in a white setting, uh, where the cues are, are given that, that you're just not really welcome and you just want to get out as, as, as much as possible. The psychic aura is, is, is similar. Um, there were some really uh, long footnotes here about the crew, about the elevators. So I'm going to read those um, uh, now to finish out this section. Uh, let me do that. So these are the footnotes um, where he's talking about the, the elevators and the stairways. Uh, footnote 50. Okay, there are two broad staircases, fore and aft, both of which reverse their zag angle at each landing. And the landings themselves have mirrored walls, which is wickedly great, because via the mirror, mirrors, you can check out female bottoms in cocktail dresses, ascending one flight above you, without appearing to be one of those icky types who check out female bottoms on staircases. And a hearty note here, so this is David Foster Wallace outing himself as exactly one of those icky types who check out who checks out female bottoms on staircases. <laughs> uh, again, one of those things that, ah, in 2020, doesn't quite read the same way as it would in 1996. Uh, footnotes 51 and 52, are they run together. He, he talks about the elevators and staircases between decks seem to be the particular objects of the anal retention of a whole special elevator and staircase custodial crew. So in footnotes 51 and 52, he kind of gets into that custodial crew. 51. During the first two days of rough seas, when people vomited a lot, especially after supper, and apparently extra especially on the elevators and stairways, these puddles of vomit inspired a veritable feeding frenzy of wet and dry vax and spot remover and all trace of odor eradicator chemicals applied by, the, by this elite special forces type crew. And footnote 52. By the way, the ethnic makeup of the Nader's crew is a melting pot melange on the order of like a Benetton commercial. And it's a constant challenge to trace the ratio-geographical makeup of the employees' various hierarchies. All the big-time officers are Greek. But then it's a Greek-owned ship. So what do you expect? Them aside... It at first seems like there's some basic Eurocentric caste system in force. Waiters, busboys, beverage waitresses, 
sommeliers, casino dealers, entertainers, and stewards seem mostly to be Aryans, while the porters and custodians and swabies tend to be your swarthier types, Arabs and Filipinos, Cubans, West Indian blacks. But it turns out to be more complex than that, because the chief stewards and chief sommeliers and maitre d's who so beadily oversee the Aryan servants are themselves swarthy and non-Aryan. E.g., our maitre d' at the five-star CR is Portuguese, with the bull neck and heavy-lidded grin of a Teamsters official, and gives the impression of needing only some very subtle prearranged signal to have a $10,000-hour prostitute or unimaginable substances delivered to your cabin. And our whole T-64 totally loathes them for no single pinpointable reason. And we've all agreed in advance to fuck him royally on the tip at week's end. And that's the end of those two uh, footnotes there. And so that brings us to the end of section nine of a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Tomorrow, I'm going to bring you section 10, and I might even try live streaming that. In the meantime, I hope all of you are staying safe, staying healthy, staying home, and staying human. Thank you.